This is a Federal News Network podcast. The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement, which is entirely responsible for its content. Welcome to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Network. Off the Shelf gives a voice to commercial service and product companies selling in the federal market. Roger speaks to members and government officials about procurement policy, trends, innovations, and debate. Now your host, Roger Waldron. Today, my guest on Off the Shelf is Jason Workmaster. Jason is a member at Miller Chevalier, LLP, a law firm here in Washington, D.C. And uh, Jason, welcome back to the show. Oh, thank you, Roger. It's great to be back. Yeah, well, uh, it's been a while since I've had you on. And so I think the I word has raised its ugly head, I think, since the last time I've had inflation uh, and how it's hit, you know, basically everything. Um, And particularly, we've seen a lot of action with regard to government contracts. And I think for this segment, we'll focus on that and talk about, you know, what what GSA has done and what DOD has done and, you know, just advice for contractors and what you're seeing out there. So first, let's just start with uh, GSA. Can you, you know, and particularly everybody focuses on the schedules and what goes on there. What, you know, can you just run down what GSA has done and your and your thoughts on it? Oh, certainly, certainly. So, you know, we have seen, and we'll get to DOD in a bit, but we've seen some memos coming out of the government, uh, you know, where there is, a, there is a recognition. I mean, the government is, uh, you know, certainly feeling the effects of inflation and understands that, you know, inflation uh, is hitting its contractors. Uh, and, to, and to start with, with GSA is in a bit of a, especially with the schedules, in a, in a bit of a uh, easier spot, I would say, if, uh, and also for Schedule contractors are in a bit easier of a spot because they, you know, those contracts, the schedule contracts, have as a standard provision in them. They have an economic price adjustment clause, which does, you know, certain subject to certain limitations, does allow a contractor uh, to come into the government to ask for increases to its pricing uh, because of you know what's happening in the overall uh, economy. And you know, GSA over the last few months is actually you know we we got a we got an initial memo where they re- you know they relax some of the restrictions uh, that were on contractors to, uh, to come in and ask for those price adjustments. You know, now recently have issued another making it even easier. Now you can just go to the contracting officer. You don't have to go up to higher levels of review. Uh, so it's to, to again, I think a recognition of this is. I've been in government contracts for about uh, 20 years. I can't remember. Uh, you know, there's never been a time where we've you know, been so focused on inflation, uh, you know, because we've been very fortunate. You know, inflation's been fairly, uh, you know, constant and fairly low uh, over the course of a couple decades, you know, many decades now. Uh, and so this is a bit of an unusual, you know, a, a new, uh, you know, again, there's been prior periods, of course, and the uh, history of our country where there's been a, a high inflation, but it's not been something that we've, the government's had to deal with recently. So it is, it is good to see, you know, but, but again, the schedules take this into, have, you know, they cover this situation. And so, you know, GSA again has been, been in a bit, a better of a position, easier position. You know, the, the big issue here uh, for, for current contractors, uh, you know, are those with uh, firm fixed price contracts that don't have, uh, economic right. price adjustment EPA clauses in them. Those that's where it's really those folks are you know really feeling right. the squeeze. Well, just to take a step back and continue to talk about GSA, and I would agree with you that GSA and the schedules program is in a better position because they have the 
contractual structure to actually address it. And then, you know, the, with the two memos you mentioned, you know, they've relaxed uh, the restrictions on the number of uh, price increases you can request in a 12 month period. Yep. You know, they've eliminated the ceiling on the percentage and, and most recently they emphasized tying it to, you know, existing indexes or commercial catalogs. Oh, that should be enough. Uh, yeah. And to your point, they also said, you know, now it's directly with a contracting officer. I, I know, I know it's the case, but at the same time, you know, we've had meetings with GSA and there's been, while they have that infrastructure in place, it's getting a little bit better, but they're still having challenges with regard to actually processing mods in a timely manner. And um, is that something you've seen? And do you have any thoughts what folks can do to make it a little bit easier for GSA to try to process yours? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the I think with this with this this kind of mod as with almost any time you're going and asking for a mod, you know, do the government's homework for it as much as you can. You know, the 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 more that you do, the better you're. You know, if if there's doc, you know, if you, I mean, we're hearing a lot, I and mean, we're gonna we'll get into this some as well, Roger. I think when we talk about new contracts with EPA clauses, but make sure you understand the index, you know, the relevant index that's in your contract. If you already have an EPA clause, you know, put together the documentary record that the government's going to need to assure itself that their index. That is, you know, the applicable, that this is the applicable index, this is what the applicable index is showing, and that's how it results in our price going from X to Y. I mean, you're going to just want to have all of those pieces nicely put together in an easily digestible form for your contracting officer. So just, you know, again, my advice on this, again, this is nothing unique to inflation. Uh, but it, you know, it's, it's just good practice generally, I think just have, you'll put yourself in the shoes of the contracting officer and be thinking, what are they going to want to see? What is going to be easily understandable to them and have that package ready for them. And that'll speed up, uh, your, the processing of your mod because otherwise just here's my mod, you know, my current price is X. Uh, now I want Y, uh, because of inflation. <laughs> that's right. yeah, that right. likely not going to work. You're going to get a lot of follow-up questions in response to that. Right. I think your point is like, make it easy, right? Yeah. Do that work up front for the CEO so they don't, you know, don't, so it's easier for them to actually analyze and make the judgments and move forward. Yeah. So on the DOD side, I know, you know, the DPC, Defense Pricing Contracting, issued a memo, um, I think, this summer after GSA had done their memo. Um, what's that memo sort of? Where, where, where does oh, that take us? I mean, there's been a couple memos now out of DOD as well, and uh, you know, I think we were. I think the contracting community again. I'm I'm with a private law firm. I've always represented contractors, so you know, I come from it that perspective. You know, I think that that you know, on on our side of the community, I think there was hope that the more re, the more re, the most recent memo out of DOD was going to be a little bit more forthcoming and a little bit more um, would be something that the, the contracting officers throughout DOD would be able to more readily rely upon to agree to increase prices on existing fixed price contracts. Because again, that's where the real rubber is hitting the road right now. I mean, you entered into a contractor entered into a fixed price contract back in 2019, 2020, they're still performing. We're in a very different inflationary environment than we were then. They're really feeling the pinch. Um, you know, if you're under a cost type contract, of course, you know, just I just want to touch on cost type contracts real quick. 
you know, if you're under cost type contract, of course, you're also experiencing additional costs, but you're passing those along to the government. Now, the thing to be on the watch for there, of course, is, you know, you have ceilings in those cost type contracts. And if you're starting to push up against your ceilings, you need to make sure you're giving proper notice to the government. But that's a very different kind of thing uh, than uh, in a fixed price contract where you're still under an obligation to perform uh, and your cost has gone up. So we were, I think we were hoping to see something out of the government, out of DOD that would be, oh, all right, we understand, we'll be a little bit easier. But that's, uh, my reaction to what we've most recently gotten out of DOD was not, uh, it was not all that comforting. You know, I mean, it was, and we just had a, I was, I was just at a, a bar meeting where we, we heard straight from, you mean, you know, a lawyer. Uh, the bar association meeting, not bar a bar association. meeting. Not, <laughs> No, no, a B- American Bar Association. To be very clear, said a. Although, although I will say, inf- inflation could drive you to drink. I think it but could drive you to drink, but that was not this meeting. But we had a representative from from DoD speak, and it was um, very illuminating. It was consistent what we saw out of out of the memo. But I mean, they're they're ver- you know what they've told contracting officers is you know if contractors coming in for a price adjustment. Uh, you know, the normal rule, the normal rule is that if you're going to agree to change the price, increase the price, the government has to get some, you know, the legal parlance is consideration, you know, in, uh, uh, in exchange for that. So it can't simply be, here's more money. It's got to be, okay, well, here's more money, but in, in, in exchange for giving you more money, contracting right. you know, contractor, you're going to give me something too. That's so, absent, um, like absent an EPA clause, right? Absent an EPA are... clause, yes. This is right. a pure fixed price contract where you don't have you don't have that safety valve. So if you you know if you're going in and you're just saying my costs have gone up, the government's what we heard is you know you, you can expect to hear well this is a fixed price contract you're you're under a fixed price contract you the right. contract why don't bear we, the bur- risk yes Jason why don't we just stop right there we're up on the break and when we come back we can continue talking about this conundrum in a certain sense where you know costs are going up significantly but you're tied to a firm fixed price contract that does not have an EPA clause to allow for adjustment and just your you know what some analysis of it what you think contractors can do that sort of thing my guest today is Jason Workmaster he's a member at Miller Chevalier I'm Roger Walder and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. My guest today is Jason Workmaster. He's a member at Miller Chevalier. And uh, Jason, when we took the break, um, you know, I had to stop you. You were beginning your analysis uh, of you know, what contractors, you, you know, the conundrum they face where there's no EPA clause. It's a firm fixed price co- contract and their, their, their prices or their costs are going up significantly. And the price doesn't reflect that and just getting squeezed in that manner and sort of DOD not necessarily being as sympathetic as you would have hoped. So, uh, so go ahead, continue your analysis. Sure. So, you know, what, what I was just to pick up, you know, so under a fixed price contract, of course, the, the contractor traditionally bears the risk of cost going up. Uh, and we heard a lot about that at the, at the ABA conference, you know, well, that's just the way fixed price contracts work. So, you know, it, it, it reminded me a bit, Roger, of when the pandemic first started, you know, what we were telling uh, our clients, we did a lot of webinars on this. And it, it's also consistent with what we were just talking about with, you know, if you do have a contract with the EPA clause, what should you be doing when you're going into the contract officer? 
just thinking back to the beginning of COVID, we were telling the folks, well, you know, if you go into your contracting officer and say, COVID, give me more money, probably not going to work because what we were telling folks at the time is, well, you know, you got to trace this back your normal way to, you know, remember your kind of contract, basic contract hygiene here under fixed price contracts. Your typical way to get a price increase under a fixed price contract is through the changes clause. All right. So, you know, if you have the standard changes clause out of FAR Part 43, uh, you know, you're going to be entitled to an adjustment in your price if you can show government directed change. And what we've heard from the government so far is the government is not viewing inflation as a government directed change. Now, I think, Roger, there's lots of folks who would have a, we, we could probably debate that question for right. you know, several hours as to whether, you know, the, the inflation is a government directed change. But just be aware, contractors, you know, that that is where the government's head is. That is not something that's, uh, that falls into the category of change on the changes clause. So they don't see it that way. And one thing interesting, Roger, I, I noted in the memo, most recent memo out of GSA, GSA said that same thing. I mean, GSA said, uh, well, we're not really viewing inflation as a government direct change, but they said, well, but you know, it's possible that you could recover. So they, they you know, they, they said, well, that's not really a change, but let's say there's a delay. There's a government caused delay in your performance and that pushes off performance into a period where your costs are higher due to inflation. Well, you know, in that scenario, you'll be able to recover your additional costs. But, but of course, what you're doing there, that's just consistent with the standard delay provision. You know, that's, right. that's not, yeah. you're not, you're not really recovering for inflation. You're recovering for the delay. And under the standard delay clause, you recover whatever your costs are that are caused by the delay. So that's not really, but, you know, was, I think GSA was trying to be, you know, nice but yeah. you know it was not it was not really addressed to the this pure inflation problem but you know so i would say, say tell contractors be expecting that response so you need to be th and, and be thinking again we'll get to one kind of unique scenario in a moment but be, be thinking if you're going to the government you're asking for a price increase the government's going to want something in exchange and so where a lot of the discussion i think is at the moment is getting creative in what that exchange might be you know, because it may be that you can, you maybe you do have a very, you know, a contracting officer who's, again, put yourself in the shoes of the government. It's not really in the government's interest, in my personal opinion, and I think this is, I think this is true for a lot of contractors to default. You know, because right. if you if the government doesn't give the price increase, if it's if it's if it really is my a matter of like I can, <laughs> you either give me the price increase or I cannot perform. And if you put that to the government, the government says, well, okay, well, well, fine. You, we're not going to give you more money. You'll just default. Okay, so then the government has to go out and re-procure all that stuff, whatever right. it is, goods or services. And then they have a claim against the prior contractor right. excess for excess re -procure. re procurement costs. Yep. And they got to go through that process. And mm -hmm. it's like that does not seem to me to be you know, a very efficient, effective, uh, reasonable response. Uh, because by the time you're done with all of that, there's no there's you spent the, the a lot more money. You've spent a lot more money than if you've simply agreed to do something reasonable with your prior contractor. So, I mean, you know, and I think being ready to have that conversation, again, doing that homework before yeah. you go to the government, because if you just go to the government and say inflation, you're not going to get a great response. But if you go to the government and you really explain, look, this is where we're at. You know, you need this. You need the goods or services we're providing. Uh, we want to provide them to you. 
but we got to reach a reasonable business uh, solution to this. But do focus on that need for consideration, because what we did hear out of the government or what we, what, we, what we have heard out of the government is that, it, you know, their view is if the contracting officer does not just simply gives you more money and there is no consideration, if there, there's no exchange, you're not getting anything back. If someone comes along and looks at that later within the government auditor or some, you know, the, some lawyer or something, you know, they could very well take the position. Well, the government's not author, a contracting officer is not authorized to enter into a modification without getting consideration. So the whole transaction, sure. you know, the whole mod is unauthorized. You don't want to be in that position. That's why I think there's some proposed amendment to the NDA up there, up on the hill right now, where it was providing for the authority to actually do an adjustment without consideration for the contracts we, you know, that you're, you've been talking about ones that don't have an EPA clause. You know, that's yeah. an interesting development. I don't know if that's going to make it out, out of the, into the NDA or not in the final version, but that's, but Congress is aware of this conundrum. Yes. Well, and, and, you know, and, and I was, there is some existing authority, uh, you know, public law 85804 does allow for uh, the government to enter into uh, modifications to contracts without consideration. So if you, if you, if you would otherwise meet the, you know, kind of the restrictures of that, uh, that would be something else that, you know, you, under far, you know, go check out far part 50 if you're a contractor. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, if, if you can fit within that framework, that might also be a way, even without new legislation, uh, that you could get. But that's going to be extraordinary. I mean, that's extraordinary contractual relief. It's not typical. You know, we were sitting around again at, at, at the bar meeting, not at the bar, but at the, right, bar, at meeting. the bar association meeting. Yes, at the, at talking about talking about you know the experience we've had with getting the government to agree to eighty five eight hundred four relief, and you know the, the the consensus was it's not easy to get. Uh, and so, you know, if Congress were to pass some additional authority, that would be greatly helpful because, again, you want to make back to the fun, back to the previous point, you just want to make the contracting officer's life easy for them. And the more out, the more outside the lines, the normal lines you get, the harder their life gets. I mean, there's big implications for this. There's always there are more and more articles and analysis showing the industrial base supporting the government is shrinking. You know, the number of small businesses doing business with DOD is shrinking and just the pressure on the industrial base. And it's so if it's, you know, it's about being a good partner, too. And, you know, this is kind of I mean, we haven't experienced this type of inflation since, gee, I was, uh, you know, um, in high school. (laughs) It's a long time ago, right? It's a it's a it's a it's a long time. And I mean, just just to just before we move on to other topics, Roger, just one other thing out of the GSA memo. Uh, you know, is is a discuss is it well? Let's you know, well, let's have shorter contract periods. You know, another way to address this problem because I mean, the government is worried about well for future contracts. You know, if I have you know five year base periods or if I have a one year period, but then I have five you know four priced off whatever. If I have a lot of set pricing now, uh, inflation continues the way it is. You know, am I just buying myself a, a another new? problem or if i put in epa clauses you know there's there could be well what if inflation goes down and then i you know uh, put in you know so there's there's all kinds of concerns so another solution that the government is is thinking about is well let's have shorter contracts uh because it's easier to predict what will happen over a six-month period than it is over a year or two years or whatever i mean of course the issue with that is that all right well let's move to six-month periods well now you have so instead that that's going to have an impact on contractors bmp costs because if you're now having to compete 
or you know, repeatedly. you're now having to bid on, you know, over and over and over again on a much shorter schedule. I mean, that's that's going to increase cost. You know, if you know, and also, well, that, it, it does. yeah. Well, I didn't say it was just the whole system isn't set up for this. I mean, at the end of the day, you talk, yeah. you make a great point about the B and P costs of industry. But what about the quote B and B? I'm putting quotes of the government and doing repeated procurements over and over again. Yeah, I just don't think the bandwidth is there to do that sort of thing. I mean, it's, you know, it's like it's doing an EPA, you know, taking an EPA measure by other means as opposed to just directly addressing the authorities that you have to add it into the clause into contracts that are longer term where it's appropriate, which is, you know, going back to one of the memos, they clearly talked about and put it into people's heads thinking about like what kind of contract you're ending into. Is it a long-term one? Is it, you know, yeah, then you need to be thinking about putting that clause in, you know, or do you have escalation rates or whatever, however you address it. But it's, uh, it's interesting, you know, Jason, we're, we're already up on the break. So when Mm -hmm. we come back, I think we've, um, we've beaten inflation down, right? You remember, (laughs) hopefully. Yeah. Well, you remember when was it whip inflation now, right? Oh yes. Oh yes. yes, Yeah. I'm really, I'm really getting old. So, but anyway, (laughs) um, when we come back, let's talk a little bit about um, transactional data reporting and uh, where it's going on the schedules program. Um, my guest today is Jason Workmaster. He is a member at Miller Chevalier. I'm Roger Walder, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. My guest today is Jason Workmaster. He is a member at Miller Chevalier. And, you know, uh, we're talking government contracts, as always, you know, from a legal perspective and program perspective. And we last two segments, we talked a lot about inflation and, uh, you know, the challenges that both government and industry are facing and in, in addressing, you know, inflation's impact on firm fixed price contracts in particular. Um, well, Jason, uh, this segment, I uh, just want to turn the lens a little bit back to GSA again and talk about, um Transactional data reporting, um, you know, just last week, GSA was accepted comments. They went through the Paperwork Reduction Act exercise for the TDR clause, you know, where they publish a burden, estimated burden, and they asked for feedback on the burden. They also asked for feedback, frankly, on the utility of the clause. And I guess as someone who has worked for years and years and years under the old you know, framework <laughs> with uh, the commercial sales practices format and submissions mm-hmm. and the price reduction clause. Can you just give your thoughts on the context and the sort of transition from one to the other? Um, I mean, from, from the, from again, you know, my perspective of, uh, looking at this is, you know, as someone who represents contractors as outside counsel. So, you know, normally of course, when we get involved uh, with you know stuff that our clients are dealing with, it's 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 normally stuff that you know have have been able to resolve internally. So, oh God, we got to call the outside lawyer now. So you know what what I can say from my from that perspective, you know, is that the that TDR has been a tremendous success. I think from from GSA and the contractors' uh, perspective, if you're measuring it by how many times you need to call people like me, because the risk profile of TDR, the legal risk profile of TDR, I think it has played out, Roger, the way it was intended to play out. That your risk, your legal risk with, with TDR is much, much lower 
than it was under the old uh and and look we say old but it's still there right i mean there's still right. plenty still of contractors there. Yeah. there are still plenty of contractors that are on the csp commercial sales practices format pricing approach and that along with that csp comes the price reductions clause and as i think probably you know many folks that listen to this program are aware you know under the old under the traditional approach to gsa schedule pricing you know, the CSP approach, you know, you'd come into GSA, you'd fill out your CSP form, you'd say, here's the stuff I'm trying to want to get on schedule. You know, the, G, the, the GSA, what GSA wanted to see was, okay, what's the lowest price you've ever sold that for before, uh, regardless of terms and conditions, you know, what's the biggest discount you've given, what's, you know, what are your deviations from those discounts, you know, and, and what we saw for years, you know, probably, you know, the first 10, 12 years I was in practice, we saw lots and lots and lots of false claims act litigation all involving how you fill out that form you know and and what do terms like standard discounts mean what oh well i mean how well, how much do you have to deviate for it to be a deviation i mean we saw all kinds of litigation like that and we saw you know huge huge settlements uh you know i remember there was a settlement not I mean, it wasn't too terribly long ago roger a 200 million dollar settlement on on this kind of issue uh, and I think what we've seen in the move to TDR, uh, you know, for tra you know, transactional data reporting, you know, for those who don't know, you know, transactional data reporting, when you go to get on schedule, you do not fill out a CSP. It's, you know, and so and the contracting officer, you know, it has a has a lot more flexibility and discretion in terms of what they want to see to justify the reasonableness of your upfront pricing. Uh, so there's not the nice, there's not this kind of standard form anymore. That is very easy for the IG to come in and audit. I mean, you and I have talked for you know now several years about the IG's view of of, of all this, uh, Roger. And you know, the IG has made you know repeated attempts uh, to uh, get GSA uh, to terminate uh, TDR, uh, but the business folks at GSA have kept pushing back on that. You know, consistently pushing back on that. Uh, and saying, look, we 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 believe that this we we continue to believe, and you 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 asked Roger about you know the type of kind of data that the gov that the GSA is getting under TDR. So you know you don't provide the CSP form, and but you do transactional data reporting. You do every month during contract performance. You do provide to GSA data, transactional data, regarding the sales you're making under your schedule contract. You provide that back to GSA, which GSA can then use. Um, to compare your, you know, what government agencies are paying for, arguably this, you know, similar kinds of goods and services horizontally, you know, across the schedules. Uh, and so, you know, the, the concept, you'll hear it talked about, the concept is, you know, we have a horizontal approach to pricing where we're trying to look at, you know, what's the price of this pencil across the marketplace and drive that down as opposed to vertical pricing where we're just looking at the pricing within a particular contractor. Um, so that's the concept. And, you know, uh, the, the business folks in GSA feel very comfortable that the data uh, that they've now been able to analyze over the last few years supports the conclusion that TDR is, in, is resulting as, in as good, if not better pricing uh, for the government than they had gotten through use of the CSP with a lot less, um, regulatory burden uh, on the contractor, uh, and frankly, you know, and, and on 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 the government. I mean, now I, I, I and with the one exception, of course, the one uh, big exception to this party being the GSAIG, who uh, 
doesn't care for this. And I think I do think some of that is just it, it's there's just not as much to audit. You know, under a, under a TDR approach, there's much, much less to audit. And even if you do go through an audit uh, of are you, you know, providing to the government the stuff that you're supposed to under TDR, well, it doesn't really lead anywhere uh, into some kind of demand for lots and lots and lots of money. Um, so, you know, I, we've seen, you know, my practice has definitely seen, I think, I, I don't know, Roger, I think we've had these conversations over the years. I think initially there was some trepidation. Yes. Uh, do I move yes, to TDR? Yeah. You know, yeah. I, I, is, is this really a good deal for me? But I, I think we're over that hump. And I think, you know, the vast majority of our, especially ones that are getting, are new to getting on schedule, they're going TDR. It's really just not even a close call. I think for most of our clients that are the only ones that are staying on CSP. Uh, are where there's some legacy, you know, there's some legacy reason to do so. Right. Good. Just in terms of way, maybe they're managing their contract. They can't make that change. But uh, one thing I wanted to ask you is good discussion, the CSP one, you know, the price reduction clause. And I, I just want to get your take on it. Cause the thing that, and professor Eukins at George uh, Washington university law school, um, has made this statement and I wholeheartedly agree with him in the past. I know he's talked about the anti-competitive impact of the price reduction clause because at the end of the day, what it does it is it restricts the ability one, amongst many of the things it does, but one of the things it does, it restricts the ability of a company to compete in the private sector, right? Uh, because of the tracking mm-hmm. customer. And that actually yeah. leads to higher prices in the, in the private market as well. Do you, do you share that? concern oh absolutely we've seen we i think we've i think we've actually i mean i think we've seen it i mean the the i mean some of the litigation that was you know the involving the uh schedules the csp prc approach you, you we saw it in the in the in the evidence that was developed in those cases you know you where the, the this deal would come into the commercial sales desk of okay we got this deal in the commercial world we're going to give x dis, x percent discount it hit the commercial desk and the commercial desk folks have been trained on their schedule obligations and it'd be, Oh no, 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 no. We can't do, we can't give that discount because we give that discount. We're going to trigger a price reduction. And so we got, we got to do something. We got to make that less competitive. We got to do this. We got to do that. We got to do the other thing. And so I, I think the, I mean, it's, it's not even um, speculation. I mean, no, it's it's not a question. It's fundamental. That has actually happened and it only makes, it only makes sense that it does so. And, and, and just all of, you know, the other, the other piece of it is just, you know the 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 burden, uh, right? You know, the cost having, associated, where the the cost associated with. I mean, of even having to train your commercials because it's all you know. The, the, and the, you know any big company that's on schedule that we've worked with on this issue, you know, it's always this struggle because it's you know, the federal it's the federal side that's picking up this obligation, but the obligation for the most part is really falling on the commercial side of the business. Because it's the commercial side of the business that's going to create the potential price reduction problem, for the most part. So right. you know, it's 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 and it just creates this. It creates a bad internal dynamic. I've seen that, and it just it just creates this this cost of making sure that all these people are, you know, trained up. Right, and there's a cost to the overall economy, at the end of the day. Right? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And to, yeah, and you know it's and it it's always amazing to me. I wonder how, at some point the light bulb is going to go off, you know, to understand that this is not just bad procurement policy; it's fundamentally bad economic policy yeah. in, in in what it's doing well, with regard to the private sector. 
Absolutely. And I, I think a lot of it still, and I think this has changed. I think we've certainly seen this with TDR. Uh, I think it's gotten better, but uh, I think it's still kind of a holdover from the notion that the schedules were for commodities. Right. You know, and, and, and it, it was literally like for the number two pencil. And that was about, right. you know, stuff like that in the office furniture. Well, yeah. You know, and I was changed. Yeah. Well, it's changed fundamentally. Price reduction clause existed. And, you know, we can understand in a certain sense when it was a, there weren't continuous open se- open seasons to submit an offer and get on. The schedules were a mandatory source. You had to use them or you were violating, the government's violating contract terms. And there was no competition required at the order level. Yes. Like three fundamental things that have changed. Yes. So you yes. understood why they wanted price protection in the contract at that time. Yes. But that's, but the world's changed, both from the internet and the way the commercial market works and from yep. the, you know, the, the entire structure of the schedules program. It's time for the schedules to catch up, and that's what TDR is all about. So, Jason, we're up on our last break. When we come back, I, I know this is an area you, you track a fair amount, the civil cyber fraud uh, initiatives that are going on. Uh, lots yeah. of stuff, I guess. You know, if you thought the Civil False Claims Act for price reduction clauses were an issue, <laughs> you know, it looks what's coming next. Uh, yeah. So we'll talk about it when we come back. My guest today is Jason Workmaster. He's a member at Miller Chevalier. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guest today is Jason Workmaster. He is a member at Miller Chevalier, and we've been talking about uh, government contracts. We, geez, we spent a lot of time on inflation. We spent a lot of time on transactional data reporting. And now I know there's something in the area you track uh, pretty closely. It's, uh, uh, you know, cyber requirements and the civil cyber fraud initiative that's, that's going on. Can you talk about the area's focus and what, what what's just what what this is so contractors are oh, aware sure. oh sure so you know cyber has been uh, a hot topic now for a number of years in a variety of ways right so you know the government has become increasingly concerned about you know the cybersecurity of its data you know, uh, we're not going to get into it, but I mean, all Roger, all the back and forth over CMMC with DOD and what that, what is that going to look like? But I mean, it, you know, and that's still that's that's still being worked out. Who knows? We'll probably be talking about that in ten years, um, still. But you know, the gov, but but this kind of nagging concern about the security of data uh, remains, and the government has, of course, over you know the last you know number of years you know, implemented a number of clauses that go into your government contracts to require you to protect, you know, protect sensitive data. And uh, this has been, you know, the government, again, continues to be worried about it. And so there was thinking within the Justice Department, well, a way to really drive home how seriously we take uh, these cyber requirements in our contracts is that we're going to stand up a task force within the Justice Department that's devoted to uh, addressing, ferreting out, uh, and, pro- and and uh, bringing litigation over uh, violations of the contracts that impose cybersecurity requirements. And of course, there's a number of ways you can violate those uh, provisions. Uh, you know, you could not have, you know, the requisite, uh, you know, technological features in place to protect the government's, to, to protect data. Uh, you, there's also all those, those clauses typically come with some kind of reporting obligation. Maybe there's a cyber incident, you don't report it. That's could arguably a contract breach, and so you know Justice stood up uh, this uh, task force and Section 889 too, right? Oh, and section oh, and section yeah, throw Section 889 in there as well. 
right. so Section 889, uh, as I'm sure listeners are, are familiar, you know, this is the provision in the NDAA, National Defense Authorization Act, from a few years ago uh, that said that, uh, first of all, it said the government is not going to procure certain Chinese, certain covered technologies uh, that come from uh, the People's Republic of China. A lot of us referred to this as the Huawei rule. You know, that was the first piece. It was part A. You can't, the government won't procure stuff, technologies. And we, the question of exactly what gets covered can get a little complicated. Uh, talk about that some other day. But then a second part of the ban, the part B ban, went into place. It said not only will we not procure this stuff, but we won't contract with an entity that uses it. And so that was, you know, we, we spent a lot of time here and, you know, other lawyers throughout the city, you know, working on that issue, uh, helping clients kind of navigate through exactly what that meant and what they needed to do in order to come to com- compliance. But that would technically mean if, you know, if you have one of the prohibited technologies in your, you know, you use it as a substantial or essential component of a system within your business and you don't tell the government and, you know, now you vi- now you've made some kind of wrongs, you know, wrong or cert- inaccurate certification or, you know, an inaccurate implied certification or something like that, all of which could form the basis for some kind of a, you know, an argument that you breach your contract. And, you know, where the, the Justice Department comes in is that they'll, they will take that breach and they will try to transform it into a violation of the Civil False Claims Act. So the Civil False Claims Act, you know, is a, is a federal statute, allows the government or a, a whistleblower to initiate an action that alleges, you know, you've submitted false claims to the government, and, you know, the, the kicker to it is treble damages. So they'll take all the damages caused the government, they'll multiply it by three, and they'll put penalties on top of that that attach to each and every false claim. In this case, think of it like your invoice. You know, how many invoices have you submitted arguably false? Penalty. It can be thousands or hundreds. Or could, could, it, right? Oh, yeah. I've been, yeah, I've been involved in cases where it was, you know, we had 2,100 invoices where there was arguably, you know, the, the relator argued there was a penalty that attached to each. So the government has now stood up, but now so there's this civil cyber fraud initiative uh, within the Justice Department, it is led by the Civil Division uh, Commercial Litigation Branch, uh, and they are partnering with the civil divisions of all of 93 U.S. Attorney's offices and the IGs uh, across the government. Uh, and you know their focus and their hope is again to not not only recover money for the government, but because of this effort uh, to uh, actually make things more you know make cyber make the government cybersecurity better. Um, they are touting uh, a couple of what they see as uh, successes. They've had a, a settlement that resulted in, uh, so the first, well, let me talk first about the one case that's actually, uh, one significant case that's actually been litigated in this space. It was a Aerojet rocket dying case out in California. So Aerojet, the, you know, the Civil False Claims Act case is brought against Aerojet Rocketdyne. There's this argument of, well, there's this cyber, you know, you breach of cybersecurity requirements. First thing the contractor does is say, whoa, 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 whoa. That is not a material provision of our contract. And so dismiss this case because in order for there to be a Civil False Claims Act, that case, Civil False Claims Act case, there has to be a material violation. The government knows, the government knows nobody's in compliance. You know, so how could they, you know, there's government knowledge here. How could there possibly, so that motion to dismiss was denied, and so the case then moved into litigation. Uh, it was actually got into trial, uh, and then I think it was I think it was in the middle of the trial, um, uh, settled uh, for nine million dollars, uh, and the relator in that case took a little over two and a half million bucks uh, away from that. Now you know, and the government is very excited about that. I mean, nine million dollars is not nothing. I mean, that's a decent amount of money, um, but 
you know, that's the that's the one, one. That's more like it's more about the symbolism too. It's like oh, absolutely, more, yeah, right. Ab- Absolutely. Yeah. This this is about striking fear into the hearts of every contractor out there, you know, that to, to be worried about this stuff. So, you know, it, it, again, I mean, it's 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 something you should it's something contractors should definitely take in mind. It's like any, you know, in my view, uh, back to the CSP, you know, CSPs were hot for a long time. Uh, you know, uh, I, I do think this is an area. And the other thing I would say to uh, the contracting community, that's actually a little different, I think, from the CSP situation. You know, in the CSP situation, you know, a lot of our clients, what they're worried about is that disgruntled former employee who could bring the case, you know, it, you know, against them uh, under the Civil False Claims Act as a False Claims Act relator or whistleblower. Um, you know, and in that's, you know, they, yes, they worry about the Justice Department bringing cases themselves, but, you know, the bar to entry is so much lower for some you know, relator, a, a, right. a, a relator. Right. So, you know, they're, they're, they're concerned about the, that person. And, and one thing I would say is that, you know, with, with cybersecurity stuff, I do think it's easier because, you know, so, so you got some technical person in your company that knows, Oh, we're not doing this. We're not reporting that, you know, that's a little bit easier to know, you know, when you're talking about a CSP form and, Oh, you said the standard discount was 10% and it should have been 15 the knowledge that's required there is a little bit more difficult to get at. So, right. And it I, could I, be I, some salesman way out in the, you know, podunk. Yeah, you know. exactly. I mean, right. it's, 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 so I think you're, I think the risk level with someone within your company actually initiating one of these lawsuits, it's higher than with, you know, the CSP or defect, you know, defective pricing, you know, that kind of stuff where you kind of have to have this really kind of arcane knowledge uh, of the proposal and what the pricing was and all that kind of stuff. This is different, and I certainly feel that way about the 889 stuff. To the, we have yet to see, I mean, we've been predicting, have yet to see it, kind of a wave of false, you know, all this stuff takes a while. I mean, the, the lawyers, I always say, live in the past, you know, and all, the, all for this stuff to get to litigation always takes, you know, a year or more for, you know, the, for us to see stuff, sure. you know, this being reported decisions. But I do think on 889, because, again, the, the, the ticket to entry there is really cheap. Because all there, all you need to know is, oh, my company is using a Huawei server over here, and we have government contracts. Yeah. Right. And 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 that's that's all you need to know. It's it's a really low level uh, of uh, of knowledge that you need. So I, I do think we're going to see that. The government obviously continues to be really interested in it, and I think what that means for the contractor uh, is that you can just expect them to continue to bring cases to be pretty just be pretty aggressive uh, in this in this area right so for the contractors and we've got to finish on this note like do your homework know what your contract requires understand your cyber requirements and you know and and manage to them right at the end of the day so yeah jason thank you so much i want to thank my guest today jason workmaster is a member at miller chevalier i'm roger walder and you've been listening to off the shelf on federal news network You've been listening to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Network. Tune in Tuesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.